Hello, welcome to Recruiting Trail. I'm your host, Andrew Nimick of the Oregonian and Oregon Live. It's been a little bit of a break. We had, obviously, the holiday vacation. Then I come back and think I'm ready to hit my stride, and my two-year-old daughter, who we call Moochie, uh, got the flu. Not COVID. We've checked it out. It was the flu, uh, but that led to a difficult stretch where it was just very difficult to get away, to get in the studio with my wife working to tape a podcast. So we are finally back. We are healthy and we are ready to go. Uh, Not a lot has transpired, frankly, since the early signing period in December and as we get closer now to the late signing period in early February. But there has been movement. And I want to talk about both the Oregon Ducks and Oregon State Beavers in terms of what's gone on in the last few weeks. Pretty different Uh, situations. Oregon has really done quite a bit better in terms of no new commitments, but have done quite a bit better with some high profile high school kids, guys that maybe we thought were long shots a few weeks ago are suddenly becoming uh, possible additions. Oregon State, on the other hand, hasn't really gone the high school route, but they've already secured a number of transfer portal guys for uh, pretty quality transfer portal guys. So Oregon and Oregon State attacking the finish to their recruiting classes in very different ways, uh, but both certainly worthy of discussion and analysis. Oregon, uh, last we talked, had a top 10 recruiting class. They still sit number six nationally. They're number one in the Pac-12 conference, but, and we thought for a long time, Oregon's number one with a bullet, but... USC has come on really strong, including the addition of Corey Foreman, who at one time, uh, and according to some sites, is considered the number one recruit in the entire country. Oregon still has a little bit of a lead over USC, but if the Trojans close with a couple of big names, and if Oregon strikes out, uh, both of those things I think are unlikely, USC could still leapfrog the Ducks and end Oregon's streak and Oregon's fight for a three-peat in the Pac-12 Uh, recruiting title. Uh, Oregon had never before had the number one recruiting class in the nation part, or excuse me, number one recruiting class in the Pac-12 prior to Mario Cristobal becoming head coach. Since he's become head coach, they've done it back-to-back years. They are currently uh, doing it for a third straight year, but not all the T's are crossed and I's are dotted. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. It could come down to one recruit that they're both in it for and probably uh, one and two for, uh, respectively, USC and Oregon. When we look at Oregon's board, and, and last we discussed Oregon's recruiting class, really the name people were interested in was Jadarius Perkins. He decommitted from Oregon in early December or late November, and, and folks kind of thought, well, he's probably headed to Mississippi State. And then he decided to commit on the 25th. Then it was going to be the 24th. Then it went back to the 25th. Then he said his decision was his own, and he would not be making that decision public. He's the number three JC corner in the country. And I think maybe outside of him and his immediate family who are not really talking, if anybody tells you they know exactly what's going on with Jadarius Perkins at this point, they're probably lying to you. Uh, I don't know if anybody knows exactly what Jadarius Perkins is up to right now. He would obviously be a high-level corner for the Oregon Ducks, who are having to replace a number of quality pieces. Obviously, uh, Brady Breeze, Javon Holland, Thomas Graham Jr. sat out the year. Diamador Lenore has declared uh, for the NFL draft. So there are some holes in that defensive backfield. Will Jadarius Perkins end up being one of the solutions uh, across from Mikhail Wright, who has truly emerged as 
really actually, uh, maybe other than Javon Holland, the star of that entire group of the last four or five years, uh, Wright's going to end up being, I think, a first-round NFL draft pick in time. He is unbelievable. I know Diamador Lenore got a lot of press this year. Wright was the better corner. And I, I personally, I don't think it's really close from an NFL prospect standpoint. Wright is a star. And, and we've seen that kind of uh, the last few games truly, truly materialize where he made some plays against USC, made some plays in the bowl game that just kind of are eye-opening. Uh, Wright's going to be a star, but that still leaves some questions on the opposite side. And at this point, you know, last I knew, Perkins was leaning towards coming back into the fold for Oregon. It looked like, you know, it was Oregon, he decommitted, then it looked like Mississippi State, then he was on the fence, and I reported that. Uh, even while, you know, a number of other sites were, were predicting Mississippi State, I said, I don't pump the brakes there, because Oregon is truly actually still in this thing. Um, then it seemed like last I had talked to him, Oregon was actually the leader. That, that's what made the most sense to him. Now he's gone dark. And I'm not sure he's even talking to college coaches. I, I can't seem to confirm with any reporter. We're all trying to compare notes to anybody. Anybody know anything about this situation? I'm not sure he's talking to much of anybody right now. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with him. But the biggest news uh, is what Oregon's doing, frankly, with the high school talent. And when Oregon signed their recruiting class, I talked about the recruiting class. And if you go back to that last podcast, I listed a handful of names that Oregon would target and said, none of these names seem like surefire gets for Oregon by any means. I wouldn't say necessarily or predict necessarily Oregon's going to get multiple of these. They're the long shot. But when Mario Cristobal and his staff are allowed to focus and able to focus on just a handful of names, they can make up a lot of ground really quickly. And they've done that. And some of the names on the board are pretty impressive. Uh, Byron Cardwell is really the one that I'm the most uh, optimistic about for Oregon at this point. He's the number one running back in the entire West region, the number eight running back in the nation. He's the type of guy that really, when you get him, when you get him in February and when you offer him in December, you kind of end up scratching your head saying, how come Oregon didn't offer this kid in February or March? Number one running back in the West region, number eight running back in the country. That's a monster, monster get. Uh, I had a chance to talk to him recently. He listed Oregon, Cal, uh, and Texas A&M as, as three schools that really stood out to him. He said, those are not my finalists. I will have another finalist or two in the mix, potentially as many as six, frankly, uh, finalists in the mix. But I would be shocked based on the way our conversation went if it was anybody other than one of those three. In my opinion, uh, you know, I know Cal's the closer school, but the way he talked about it, it really felt like Oregon and Texas A&M were the two schools that stood out to him. I, I think Oregon ends up pulling this one off. I'm not quite ready to make a prediction at this point, but I think the playing time is there. I think what Moorhead can sell, uh, not only in his development and, and the way he featured Saquon Barkley when he was at Penn State, but also what Oregon showed this year and, and, and last year. If you look at what Oregon did offensively the last couple of years, uh, they really ran with two running backs. And, and I know C.J. Verdell uh, off and on was the featured back, but Travis Dye got some run. Cyrus Habibi Likio uh, got run as a goal line back. So you could really even argue or Oregon utilizes three running backs, but certainly two. They get plenty of run. And when you project forward, assuming C.J. Verdell goes to the NFL, that is not a guarantee uh, because his biggest question coming into this year was durability. And then he missed most of the season with injuries, he may come back to try to prove he's more durable. But if you look at what they have coming back, they don't have a proven star running back. And, and if you're as good as Cardwell, you're the number eight running back in the nation, number one running back in the West region, you've got to be thinking there's an opportunity 
for me to get some carries early. And I know Sean Dollars looked great in the Pac-12 title game, and then he kind of didn't get run in the bowl game. So there is no proven guy coming back where you just say, with a bullet, this guy's going to be a star. This is an all-conference player. So there's an opportunity there for Cardwell. Uh, He decides in about a week. So we will find out fairly soon where he's going to go. And again, I think... I think it's Oregon slightly over Texas A&M. Cal's in there as well. He's got a number of offers, uh, but Oregon did a phenomenal job. And, and part of the reason I think it's Oregon, when I talk to him, one of the things that I always think this is really telling, he said he had a relationship with the coaches, but he also said he'd sat down and done Zoom calls multiple times with an academic advisor to chart out his classes for Oregon. He's also sat down with a strength coach and a nutritionist at Oregon. Unless he's the most thorough kid in the world discussing his last schools, most kids don't do that unless they're trying to make sure the school they're about to choose fits all their needs, checks every box. And that's one of the things he said. I want to make sure what the coaches are telling me at any school that I'm looking at, that that what they're selling me is a vision that aligns with the rest of the offerings with the school. So making sure when they sell him, you know, playing time potentially, or if they sell him an elite program that's going to do X, Y, and Z for him in terms of his nutrition, in terms of his body, in terms of his curriculum, that then he's able to talk to those people and find out, yes, in fact, what the coach has told me is true. This is how I will be utilized. This is how I will be developed mind, body, and soul, uh, in Eugene or wherever I choose. And so the fact that he's had probably seven or eight meetings here in the last few weeks with Oregon staff, not just football staff, but but various members of the university, that tells me he's very, very, very serious about Oregon. And again, unless he's just the most thorough recruit I've ever heard of, um, I just can't imagine he's sitting through all those meetings for no reason. He's definitely not sitting through them as a smokescreen. So really watch for Cardwell to potentially uh, get added into the mix. The other name that's that I think Oregon fans should get excited about or at least keep an eye on is Rajon Davis. He's one of the top 65 recruits in the country. He's the number four outside linebacker in the country at a modern day high school. How many times have we heard about modern day in the last few years? Oregon in the class of 2019 uh, really kind of kicked open the door there and, and was able to secure a number of big names, linebacker Mace Funa, defensive lineman Keon Ware Hudson, and running back Sean Dollars in 2019. And that really opened things up for them and gave them an opportunity going forward to recruit that group. Uh, this year, they land Under Armour All-American Jalen Davies. He's already on campus in Eugene. Jalen Davies is from modern day. But, but... Uh, Rajon Davis, by most predictions on 24-7, in fact, all predictions on 24-7, is going to pick USC, who's the other school that's been heavily involved with modern day, not only uh, traditionally, but uh, that USC-Oregon recruiting rivalry at modern day picked up this year when Kyron Ware Hudson, uh, the, uh, the Under Armour All-American wide receiver, flipped from Oregon to USC. So it, it's going to be a battle, I think, between USC and Oregon. Again, USC... Uh, according to 24-7 Sports, pretty comfortably in the lead. All five predictions for Rajon Davis right now say or, or say USC, excuse me. But I, I do think Oregon has a shot. And, and I, do I think they're making up huge ground? Do I think they've jumped in front of USC and are the leader? Uh, no, I, I think USC is probably still the team to beat currently. He has no commitment date formally set. But the longer this goes on, 
the better Oregon's chances are, and there are other schools involved, Ohio State's really involved too, the better the chances are that an Ohio State or an Oregon can leapfrog USC. And when we look at the Pac-12 recruiting uh, battle, if Cardwell were to pick Texas A&M in a hypothetical, if Cardwell were to pick Texas A&M, if Jadarius Perkins were to pick Mississippi State or somewhere else, God only knows what that kid's doing at this point. If uh, Rajon Davis were to pick USC and if USC were to maybe get one more piece, they could leapfrog Oregon. I don't expect that to happen. I think Perkins is still uh, 50-50 to go to Oregon because the last time I talked to him, it seemed like it was a slam dunk that it was Oregon. Um, I think Cardwell ends up picking Oregon and Rajon Davis probably ends up picking USC, but that then would not be enough if Cardwell's in the fold for Oregon for USC to jump Oregon. Interestingly, if you give Oregon Jadarius Perkins, Byron Cardwell, and Rajon Davis, they stay at number six nationally. They're number six nationally right now. If you give them all three, um, or certainly at least Rajon Davis and Cardwell, according to my math, they stay at number six. Uh, so Oregon's pretty set at the number six spot. They could obviously get jumped by seven, eight, or nine, or 10 if any of those programs uh, landed some major, major pieces. But if Oregon's able to add a piece or two, they will finish number six. That's the highest ranking ever uh, for the program. And already in terms of overall points for 24-7, it's the best recruiting class in program history. And again, they're still in the mix for the number four outside linebacker in the country, Rajon Davis, the number eight running back in the country in Byron Cardwell, and the number three junior college cornerback in the country, Jerry's Perkins. The long shot the, the one that every Oregon fan, I'm sure, is holding out hope for is JT Tuomalau. JT Tuomalau is the number one recruit in the nation, according to some sites. Corey Foreman's the number one recruit, according to other sites. So he's splitting the difference in terms of being the number one uh, recruit in the nation. JT Tuomalau out of Washington, it, it's going to be Ohio State. You know, Ohio State was the leader. Um, I'm not saying it's going to be Ohio State. It, for a long time, it looked like it was going to be Ohio State. Alabama, Washington, Oregon were all battling really, really hard. And Alabama's made a major push. I think I think the most likely scenario is just an absolute dogfight to the end between Alabama and o- and Ohio State. Uh, he never really seemed like a kid who really wanted to stay in the Northwest. I don't necessarily think that totally dismisses Oregon as like, well, oh well, they lost a recruiting battle and and they don't take a hit for that in in, in any capacity because he was going to leave anyway. That's not how I feel. But at the same time. Uh, I think it's it's easy to project him outside the Northwest because I think he always considered that a very realistic possibility. In fact, I think he always probably considered that the most likely possibility. If you're Oregon, are you disappointed? Potentially you don't get JT to him allow or Corey Foreman? Sure. Yeah, of course, because you were in those fights for a long time. If you're Washington, are you disappointed that potentially this is going to shake out where Emeka Igbuka, the number one receiver in the nation, uh, one of the top wide receiver prospects of the past decade from Seattle, the Seattle area, chooses Ohio State and JT Tuomalau, the number one recruit in the country out of the Seattle area, chooses either Ohio State or Alabama. Yeah. You know, Oregon, not that they get a pass, but those guys, those are battles that, you know, are tough. When there's an elite, elite Northwest kid, if he's in your state, you should win. If he's in the other guy's state, Washington, sometimes Idaho, uh, you know, you're going to battle. And, and if you lose, okay but at least you took the swing. But if you're Washington right now with JT Tuomalau and Emeka Ibuka is already gone. If JT Tuomalau leaves Washington uh, for college too, they've got to just be absolutely kicking themselves. A year ago around this time uh, on my radio show on, on 1080, uh, I said, if Washington doesn't finish with the number one class in the Pac-12, that's a missed opportunity. Because not only are those two, the number one wide receiver and the number one overall recruit in the Seattle area, the number one quarterback in the nation is actually in Seattle 
too in Sam Heward. They were able to get Sam Heward a legacy kit, but uh, they would have liked to have gone at least, at least gone two for three. Three for three was the goal. Two for three was the minimum expectation. And Washington just absolutely has to be devastated, devastated with their recruiting hall right now, even with the number one recorder, even with the number one quarterback in the nation. It's just an absolute flat out missed opportunity. Imagine if within a 15 to 20 mile radius, there were three of the top eight, nine recruits in the nation, 20 miles outside of Eugene. And Oregon only got one of the three. And the one of the three was the lowest rated of the three and also was destined to go there because his last name was Harrington or Fouts or or something along those lines. That's the equivalent of what this is. I mean, this is just an inexcusable swing and a miss from Washington. Uh, it's the kind of thing that gets people fired. It's the kind of thing that makes you take a look in the mirror and say, we are doing something wrong. Not maybe, we definitely are. We are doing something wrong. Washington's got to get it fixed. I know Chris Peterson wasn't a great recruiter. I really had higher hopes, frankly, for Jimmy Lake at Washington. He had a track record as a great recruiter. This was just a flat-out swing and miss from Washington. They have to be absolutely, absolutely devastated. And then the other bit of news is that January 27th, class of 2022, defensive lineman uh, Grayson Halton, the nation's number 11 defensive end, is announcing his commitment. He's got all kinds of offers. He listed, I think, just under 20 scholarship offers. He didn't cut his list to finalists. Uh, number 11 defensive end in the nation. Again, 227 overall prospect. To give people an idea, Keanu Williams, who was a very celebrated recruit in this class, or at least certainly a recruit that uh, Oregon on signing day was very excited about. Keanu Williams was the number 19 defensive end in the country nationally and was the number 327 overall prospect. Good player. Great player. Versatile player. Uh, somebody definitely you get excited about and say, that's a nice piece up front. Grayson Halton's quite a bit better. It, you know, about 100 spots higher in the overall rankings and almost right on the edge of being a top 10 defensive end nationally. Those guys are hard to find on the West Coast. I've talked about that before. It'll be a pattern until it's not, but it, it will be a pattern for as probably as long as I'm ever doing recruiting. Uh, offensive linemen, defensive linemen, extremely hard to come by on the West Coast. Tight ends, wide receivers, quarterbacks, running backs, you can find it. DJ Uyunglele from, from California, right? Uh, Bryce Young from California. Uh, Najee Harris from California. Uh, you can list all kinds of receivers around the country who are phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal wide receivers who are from California, from Arizona. You know, five-star quarterback Ty Thompson coming in already now in Eugene. He's from Arizona. The West Coast produces those guys. Keely Ringo was the number one or two corner in the nation last year. Arizona. This area, this region produces skill guys, but there aren't a lot of guys in the trenches. So if you can get one, and if you can get one early, that would be great. Grayson Halton, uh, I had a chance to talk to him a few days ago. Oregon, to me, is the overwhelming, overwhelming favorite. I probably will put in an official prediction on him in the next couple of days. Uh, just make sure all the dust settles on his recruitment before I really formally put that in. But uh, that is my expectation at this point. Grace, Grayson Halton, six foot four, 250 pounds, uh, recruited by almost the entire Pac-12. I think he's picking Oregon. I think it's a monster, monster get for that D-line group. Halton and Williams fit together. I know they're a year apart, but they fit together in terms of uh, how you would look, what you would look for in a defensive line. You want those complementary pieces. They complement one another, and they're both highly sought after kids. And 
No, they're not. It's not JT Tumalo and Corey Foreman, uh, but it is two of the like the next tier or two tiers down, frankly, because those guys have separated themselves so much. But those two guys are the next the next tier uh, on the West Coast. Both top three or four players in 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 the region at their position. Big gets potentially for Oregon. So, you know, we talked about after signing day, there aren't a ton of places where Oregon looks like the early leader or the late leader for 2021 guys. And there aren't necessarily a ton of 2022s right on the horizon. Mario Cristobal is given kind of a month to work. I know he's looking for a defensive coordinator, but he's given a month to work, look at the board, focus on things. And here we are talking about the number eight running back in the nation, Cardwell, uh, predicting him choosing Oregon potentially. Uh, Rajon Davis, Oregon in the mix, although again, USC is the favorite, but Oregon is starting to make up a little ground there. And Jerry Perkins, the number three junior college corner in the country. And then in the class of 2022, uh, adding a rare piece. I know he's the number 11 defensive end in the country, a four-star prospect, but because of how rare those defensive linemen are, he's extra valuable on the West Coast. That's a great, great month of work, even when you haven't necessarily added any new pieces. Oregon going to hang on, I think, to the Pac-12 title in the recruiting rankings. Oregon, I think, going to hang on to a top six or seven spot nationally in the recruiting rankings program uh, program best finish for them uh, and, and still some big pieces on the board. So exciting times for Oregon. Things are really going to pick up and then unfold here in early February when kids can put pen to paper for the second and final time. I got to get to Oregon State. After the break, we'll take a look at Oregon State's finish to the 2021 recruiting cycle and discuss why things look vastly different than they did on signing day in December. The Oregon State Beavers had an interesting, interesting break from the early signing period to now. I'm Frankly, I'm a little bit fortunate and glad we, we were able to take some time away because it was difficult to get a read on some of these programs. And I think some of the programs had a hard time. Guys started hitting the transfer portal. And in terms of how you would rank your board, it became kind of a shuffle of, okay, what's the value on player X? from Texas A&M. He's got two years to play two. Is that more or less valuable than this high school recruit we could potentially get? How do we stack our board? How do we make sure we're we're spreading out our scholarships so we don't have a class of 40 freshmen coming in because all the freshmen could come back next year as true freshmen uh, per NCAA rules because of coronavirus protocol? Uh, what are we going to do? And so it gave programs a little bit of a reset. Oregon State uh, signed the smallest class in program history in December, single-digit recruits. Most programs signed between 20 and 25, and people were going, oh my gosh, this program's signed a class that's not in the top 100. They're still not in the top 100, but they've added five prospects. How is that possible? Four of those five are transfer portal kids. Four of those five are guys that potentially uh, you wouldn't necessarily have seen coming six, uh, seven, eight weeks ago. O- Oregon State... Uh, Kind of always seemed like, based on who they were recruiting, how many scholarships they'd offered out and and what they were looking at at their board, it always seemed like they were holding a number of scholarships back for the transfer portal. And sure enough, here we are, and they've done it. Uh, I want to discuss the transfer portal and how that all shakes out and what that means for a program when they attack the portal this hard um, in terms of the long-term prospects for that program. But first, I want to get to these names. Uh, Makaya Tung 
He has four years to play four from Georgia. In the class of 2019, he was the number nine athlete in the country. He would be a top five commitment in the history of the program if they had gotten him as a high school player. And again, he's got four years to play four. So he's almost exactly like a high school kid. Uh, when you get a guy who's a sophomore or a junior transfer and you say, well, here's what he was ranked in high school, you can say, well, Yes, but some of that intrinsic value of him being that highly sought after kid or you have years to develop him that you don't have. Uh, Tung, you, you have that time. Four years to play for. He was at Georgia. Um, this is a situation with him where he wanted an opportunity to play and he felt like at Oregon State, he was intrigued by the offense. His dad played at Oregon State and he felt like potentially it was somewhere he could come in and play and add value in an interesting offense. And so I think getting a four years to play for a four-star prospect uh, a year or two removed from being the number nine athlete in the entire country, that's an exciting piece. And I, and I think that's a nice piece. Wide receiver is a luxury piece though for Oregon State, I would say. I think that, that wide receiver group is pretty talented. I, I think Zariah Beeson's going to be a breakout star in the next couple of years. Look for him to be an all-conference performer in the next couple of years. I don't know if it'll come next year. But I, I do think he's going to be a, an absolute monster in Corvallis. There, there are some rave reviews from his teammates in terms of what he brings to the table. So it's not a position of weakness, but it's not the end of the world to add another body to a position of strength, to build strength on strength and have a really deep, talented receiving core. Deshaun Fenwick uh, commits from South Carolina and South Carolina fans were really bummed that he left. I know he was the number two running back but he was the change of pace back for them. Genuinely, truly, he was a guy who played. He was a guy who was an impact player. And when he got carries, he was very, very good. He was a very talented running back. The issue is the guy ahead of him is probably one of the top 10 running backs in the country. So he knew there's a workhorse back that's elite ahead of me. I can't be the workhorse back here. So he enters the transfer portal and he heads out to Corvallis, the West Coast, obviously from South Carolina, quite the trip. Deshaun Fenwick is a really, really nice addition. He doesn't replace Jeremiah Jefferson. Jeremiah Jefferson was probably, when healthy, one of the top three or four running backs in the country. So the running back position is not going to be as talented at the top as it was last year. It's just too hard to replace a Jeremiah Jefferson. That said, they're going to replace him with multiple bodies. They're going to have B.J. Baylor, who's a talented guy. I think he's been underappreciated in, in Corvallis because of Jeremiah Jefferson, but he's a talented guy. You've got Deshaun Fenwick, Calvin Tyler Jr. enters the transfer portal. Uh, so he is uh, gone from Oregon State, but you've got a number of running backs potentially in that room who are pretty talented. It's going to be interesting to see how they splice up carries, but Fenwick comes into this competition and, and I would be surprised, frankly, if he doesn't end up being the lead back. He's very, very talented. That was a nice addition. Elijah Jones, EJ Jones, the corner out of Kansas, another addition for Oregon State. Uh, EJ Jones was a starter at Kansas. And, and when Nashawn Wright declared for the NFL draft, it created an immediate need to get some experience in that secondary, whether or not that's, you know, EJ Jones is an immediate plug and play uh, for Nashawn Wright's position. I don't know, but uh, he's a proven FBS talent and you need that when Nashawn Wright uh, heads elsewhere and in the modern college football landscape and frankly in the NFL too, you need talent and you need depth in the secondary. You just need it because college football is so, and NFL football, football today is so pass heavy and so pass 
dependent offensively that to combat that you need really good secondary play. And I know some of the uh, advanced analytics, frankly, say it's more valuable to have an elite back half or an an elite backfield part of your defense, a defensive backfield, than it is to have an elite front that gets a pass rush that that you can sometimes scheme out of that with quick releases and slants and and the running game and play action that you can kind of slow down uh, a defensive line. But if you've got great coverage, it doesn't matter what they do, you're going to have great coverage. So a nice piece there. And then Hanelli Bloomfield, the Utah State uh, offensive lineman in in 2019, he played in 13 games, started four, wasn't an all-conference guy. Uh, This is a depth play. And, and as good as Oregon State's offensive line was this year, and I, I think they were surprisingly good, uh, not because they were elite, but because I think the expectation was they were going to take a major step back and they didn't, uh, you need depth and, and you need as many warm, talented, proven bodies as you can get up front along the offensive line. Again, they're so hard to get on the West Coast and even the top programs, uh, really outside of Oregon because of the way Mario Cristobal is recruited, but you look at USC and Washington and and all the programs in the country, frankly, uh, or all the programs in the West Coast, frankly, they have a hard time bringing in offensive linemen. Oregon got two of the top uh, seven uh, offensive tackles or two of the top nine offensive tackles in the country. The next two highest rated offensive tackles in the entire Pac-12 uh, to commit to a Pac-12 school in this recruiting cycle were something like 34th and 49th in the nation. It's tough to get. They don't grow on trees. So if you can get one, uh, it's a big deal to be able to bring one in who is talented and can provide some depth. So I think that was a nice pickup. I don't see any earth-shattering additions. And I kind of put transfers, and Oregon State does a lot of this transfer uh, this transfer addition subtraction stuff. I think we're going to see a lot of that going forward as part of their rebuild. And even, even when they stabilize and, and potentially become Coach Jonathan Smith's vision, which is a perennial uh, bowl team, or at least competing for a bowl game every year. I think they're always going to rely somewhat on the transfer portal, more so than, say, a Washington, a USC, an Oregon, a Stanford, uh, who maybe do a little bit better job recruiting with, with the high school kids. I put, I put transfers into kind of four categories. You have elite talent that's heading to other elite places. That's a Justin Fields going from Georgia to Ohio State. I know Zach Charbonneau, uh, the Michigan running back who ran for something like 800 yards and nine touchdowns or something like that. As a freshman in 2019, he entered the transfer portal this week. That's elite going to a different elite spot. Proven talent, you you expect them. They were all conference talents. You expect them to go from all conference talent to all conference talent. The second is solid performer looking for a feature role. This is Deshaun Fenway. This is, uh, to some extent, EJ Jones from Kansas, the corner that Oregon State picked up. These are guys who have playing time. They might even be multiple, you know, multiple seasons of proven starter, at least one season of being a starter. And they've done fairly well. They're just looking for a better opportunity. They're just looking for a better fit, whether it's scheme because their defensive coordinator or head coach got fired or left for a different job, or it's truly like, you know, I think I'm at Kansas and Oregon State's a better program or whatever the case may be. I want a more featured role, which would be the case for Deshaun Fenwick. It's guys who are changing position who have not been featured stars. They're not tier one transfers, but they have proven that they deserve more of a role and they go to a different program to get it. Tier three to me is a highly rated prospect looking for a fresh start, 
or some playing time. This is uh, Makaya Tong for me from Georgia, the number nine athlete in the country in the class of 2019. It went from Georgia to Oregon. Wasn't getting a ton of playing time. Saw the writing on the wall at Georgia. It's not that he busted out. It's not that he failed. It's not that his grades were poor. Uh, It's not that he did anything off the field and he's looking for a new place. This is just, they're recruiting four and five-star talent ahead of me. And I want to play. And I don't necessarily need a feature role but I want the opportunity to play and I see the program I'm at, I'm probably not going to play a ton. And, and you know, Makaya Tung is that guy. I could. This is also kind of the tier of the lower rated guy, a guy who's in the FCS and is solid, not elite, not elite, but very solid who says, I think I can be a rotational guy at the FBS and I want to challenge myself at the highest level. And tier four is prospect came in, uh, for one reason or another, whether it's grades, whether it's off the field, whether it's going there and then the reports from that school are like, he just couldn't, he just flat out couldn't cut it. They are looking for a new place because they've basically been told you can't cut it. And when you look at Oregon State's transfers, I think consistently you need to be top three, those top three tiers, an elite guy going to an elite place, a solid performer looking for a feature role, a solid performer in the, either the FCS or FBS whether it's an FCS all-conference all-American now going to the FBS or you know a backup quarterback who comes into a role for four games and looks really, really good, but then the starter comes back healthy and he doesn't win the job. Oregon State's most of their guys is tier two and tier three, solid performer looking for a feature role or a highly rated prospect looking for a fresh start. That's Tyjon Lindsay. Uh, that's you know Tristan Jebbia. That's Addison Gums. That's EJ Jones. All those guys fit in tier two and tier three. And those guys tend to decide early. The elite going to elite places, those guys can wait as long as they want. They can do their research because they're looking for a place, get through spring football, almost get through spring football, find out who's the true starter is. And if you guys have a gap, bring me in and make me the all-conference running back, quarterback, receiver, defensive lineman, linebacker. They know wherever they go, they're going to play. They know their scholarship's not going to dry up. And then Oregon State, frankly, doesn't necessarily want failed prospect getting a second chance. I don't think Oregon State wants to do that too many times. They want to stay in that tier two and tier three. Solid performer looking for a featured role? Yep. Highly rated prospect who isn't necessarily flaming out, but isn't necessarily earning planning time either because the guy ahead of him is very good? Check. You can do that. The two and threes commit early because those spots dry up. Tier one guys? They can wait. Tier four guys, Oregon State doesn't want. The tier two and tier three transfers are pretty much out of things. There's a lot of tier fours hoping, praying that they find a spot when it's looking less and less likely because so many of those kids are in the portal. And then there's the tier one guys, like a Zach Charbonneau who enters the portal this week. He doesn't have to worry about, uh uh-oh, there's not going to be a scholarship. Wherever he chooses, there will be a scholarship. He's very, very talented. So Oregon State probably going forward, the rest of this recruiting class, unless they can get in a battle and get a Zach Charbonneau type talent, a tier one transfer, an elite transfer, they're probably done in the transfer portal. The tier two and tier three guys are gone. The tier four guys they don't want. And the tier one guys often end up at Ohio States, Texas, Florida, Florida State, Oregon, USC. They project out to where can I win a conference title? Where can I chase a national title? Justin Fields, probably isn't going to transfer to an Oregon State. So Oregon State probably done in the transfer portal. A couple more scholarships left. They could get an offensive or defensive lineman. I think that's where they still need to look. 
You always want more offensive line bodies because frankly, Oregon State spent two, three years recruiting half the guys were low-level FBS talents and half the guys graded out as flat-out FCS prospects. They were beating out Portland State. They were beating out Montana. I had an FCS coach call me a couple years ago and said, how many guys did Oregon State miss at center, guard, and tackle? Because they're coming after our scholarship guys. And that's usually a problem. And sure enough, it was a year where they'd offered a ton of guys and didn't get it. This year, I believe it was tackle. It might've been guard. I'm fairly certain it was tackle. They offered double digit tackles and didn't get any. So I could see them, whether it's the transfer portal or whether it is a high school guy, I could see them taking a flyer on a tackle somewhere. Again, whether that's high school or transfer portal late, I don't know, but it seems like they still obviously want one. They offered a ton of them there. And then D-line, they need help at D-line. So many Pac-12 programs do, that does not make them an outlier. So that's where things stand right now. Oregon State's class still outside the top 100 nationally because they still have single digit high school commitments. They just went to the transfer portal and got, you know, four-star talent and proven, you know, Deshaun Fenwick is a three-star prospect, but he's played like a four-star talent. And EJ Jones is a multi-game starter for Kansas. To me, that's kind of a four-star talent. I know that doesn't necessarily grade out. Here was his high school grade. He was a four-star prospect. But if you're bringing in a guy that you expect to plug and play start and play at a fairly high level because they did at their previous stop, that's a really good sign. So I think Jonathan Smith and his staff are doing a nice job of finding the talent they want in the high school ranks and then finding complementary pieces via the transfer portal. Is that a winning recipe long term? I don't think, and, and who knows for sure, because the transfer portal is, is reaching a new is reaching new heights and this is a new normal. The transfer portal wasn't a traditional way to add talent. Now it is. Now everybody adds talent via the transfer portal. Justin Fields uh, transferred. Baker Mayfield, Heisman Trophy winner, transferred. Right? That's the new normal. Elite players transfer. It used to just be kind of washouts or second chance guys transferred. Now, lots of guys transfer. So I don't know if you can be transfer dependent and win a conference championship in the new normal because the talent level is higher than it used to be. But I do think long-term, long-term view here, Oregon State has to consistently do better than last in the Pac-12 and outside the top 100 with high school kids. I think you can do that every once in a while if you hit the portal hard and you do well in the portal. And Oregon State did that this year. This is a positive recruiting class. Is it elite? No. Does it get an A or a B? No. But it probably gets a C plus. And I think there are a lot of people on paper who say this is an F. They finished last in the Pac-12. They finished outside the top 100 for the first time ever. F. No. That was always the plan. They always were going to go after the transfer portal. So you have to factor that in. Now, if we get to years where that's not the plan, and they're 90th, 95th, 11th in the Pac-12, and they get two transfer portal guys that's probably not going to get it done in the Pac-12 consistently. Every once in a while, maybe, maybe you have a bowl eligible year doing that. But eventually, eventually, what Coach Smith and his staff need to aim for is top eight recruiting classes pretty much every year, unless they plan on taking three or four transfers. And if they do, then ninth is okay. That's as low as you can really go. Listen, the Power Five, and this is the thing that people miss with Pac-12 recruiting. Pac-12 recruiting is substantially worse 
than every other conference in America. If you finish last in the Pac-12, there's a decent chance you finish last in all of the FBS because the ACC recruits at a higher level. They're in the South. The SEC definitely recruits at a higher level. There are years where eight SEC teams are in the top 13 nationally. So you could be ninth in the SEC and be 17th nationally. That's how good the SEC recruits. The Big Ten recruits surprisingly well considering they're in the Midwest and there isn't as much talent in the Midwest, although they do feed off of Ohio and Pennsylvania, two of the top five uh, state producing talent or talent producing states in the country. The Big Three, California, Florida, Texas, four and five are probably Ohio and Pennsylvania. So they're still in the Big Ten footprint and that's why the Big Ten is able uh, to still bring in some elite recruiting classes. And then you've got the Pac-12. And, you know, the Big 12 is there too, obviously. They recruited a decent clip. They've got Texas uh, in the Big 12. And then you've got the Pac-12 and they fall behind. You look at how many Pac-12 programs year in, year out are in the top 25. It's two, it's three. That's not good. Sometimes the number five Pac-12 program in terms of recruiting rankings in a given year is something like 38. You want to see why the Pac-12 is falling behind? They're not recruiting very well. So it's not too much to ask of Oregon State to say you can finish in the top eight or nine year in, year out in the Pac-12. Because the Pac-12, not good at recruiting. The worst in the country at recruiting. If every year you took the number one team in the Pac-12 and compared them to the number one team in the SEC, they'd lose in terms of recruiting rankings. You compared them to the number one team in the Big Ten, every year, they lose. If you compared them to the Big 12, most years, they'd lose. Those programs just recruit at a higher level. That's Alabama. That's Ohio State. They recruit at a really, really high level. That's Clemson in the ACC. Those programs recruit at a much higher level. So to say to finish eighth in the Pac-12, not too much to ask for Oregon State. And that's what they need to do. They need to get better to that point. I've been very critical of Oregon State in the past. That's because prior to this year, in the last three recruiting cycles, Oregon State did not land a single, not one, in three years, top 500 high school prospects. Top 500. I'm not talking about top 100. I'm not talking about top 250. Top 500 recruit in the nation. Oregon State went three years without getting a single one. That is so far beyond unacceptable. It's it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. This year, yes, it was a small class, but they got two. Demir Collins, the Jefferson running back, and Easton Mascarenas, the middle linebacker. That number has to continue to go up. This was progress. Do not, do not look at the rankings at the end of, or in early February after the late signing period and say, they still finished outside the top 100 with another month they failed. This was the blueprint for this year. Get a handful of quality guys, and they did, check. Get some headliners in the high school ranks that are better than what we've done the last four or five years, check. Easton Mascarenas, Demir Collins, and then get some really high quality talent that's plug and play talent in the transfer portal, check. Progress. Elite? No. Oregon, USC? No. Ohio State, Alabama? Clemson? Certainly not, but progress. So let's take it as as it really is and look at it really. And I've seen a lot, whether it is Oregon, whether it is Oregon State, I've seen a lot of bad, bad coverage. Recruiting is becoming more popular than ever, and you have more people trying to wade in with opinions when they don't know. I've seen people write about this being an all-time failure for Oregon State recruiting. It's not. This is a much better recruiting effort than the last three years. It just flat out is. Their headliners are better. The transfer portal guys are good. 
This is a better year. I saw a fairly prominent Oregon recruiting writer pick Corey Foreman and JT Tuomalau to choose Oregon. I mean, it's foolishness. At the absolute most, I told you Oregon has a chance with Corey Foreman and a chance with JT Tuomalau. They were never, ever the leader for either one, ever. You could say Oregon was starting to move up for JT Tuomalau for a little while, and they were. Maybe from four to three, four to two. And you could say Oregon moved up from Corey for Corey Foreman from not in the top five to in the top four, in the top three even. But I have a really hard time with people who predict that elite, elite prospects are going to choose Oregon or choose a program when the kid will tell you, and whether they tell you on the record or off is another thing. But if a kid won't even tell you that Oregon's his leader, in fact, behind the scenes, he's telling you, Oregon's making up ground, but they're not the leader. And you're telling your readers that that's where he's going, you're guessing. And you're doing it to look like you know what you're talking about. And I saw a lot of it this cycle. I saw a lot of it. And that's why I have a tremendous amount of respect for Brandon Huffman, for Greg Biggins, and, and really the guys at 24-7, the local guys, uh, Matt Prem and uh, Kevin Wayne. I think those guys do a really good job of being honest, of being fair, and being knowledgeable. It's one thing to be knowledgeable. It's another thing to just spew nonsense. And then the one in 10 times you write, say, see, I knew. Bad, bad journalism. It's bad, bad media. And there was a lot of it. And there wasn't just one person. There wasn't just two people. Recruiting's becoming bigger than ever. And more and more sites are saying, hey, we need somebody to cover recruiting. And they get somebody that doesn't understand the history. They don't understand the expectation and they don't have the sourcing. And so they're guessing. They're guessing. And I can promise you, I don't guess. There are times when if I don't know, I'll say, I'm not sure. You know, Byron Cardwell, I'm not 100% sure he's picking Oregon. I'm not. But I do think it's Oregon and Texas A&M. And the reason I think it's going to be Oregon is because of the meetings he told me he had with Oregon. They're nutritionists. They're strength coach. I give you reasons. Facts. If somebody's not doing that, if they're throwing something against the wall, there's nothing to back it up. It's important to do this job right, I hope. In this episode, I did it. And I hope the next time we have one of these episodes, for Oregon fans, we're talking about Cardwell being an Oregon duck. We're talking about Rajon Davis's decision coming up and maybe, maybe, maybe Oregon making up ground on USC. I hope we're talking about Grayson Halton being an Oregon duck. For Oregon State, I hope they find a hidden gem along the offensive and defensive line. That's my hope for the next time we have one of these podcasts. So I think we'll be back next week is the next time, unless... There's a major commitment. I promise with this new podcast, if there's major, major news, if a big time recruit chooses Oregon or Oregon State, we will do just a quick six, seven, eight minute quick hitter. What does this mean? So if there's a big commitment like that, there will be a podcast sooner than next week. If not, thank you for listening to the recruiting trail with Andrew Nimick and I'll see you next week.